It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. I was a little surprised over the weekend, and hope you had a good one, that a fair amount of media attention was devoted to the death of Jackie Mason. Now, Jackie Mason, especially if you grew up in New York, was this Borscht Belt comic who later in life hit it big. He was a rabbi who then did shtick, and he ended up on all the television shows and doing stand-up routines and was in a few movies. Uh, and he kind of faded from the scene. Uh, New York Times said he turned kvetching into comedy gold. He'd tell, he'd tell jokes that would seem old-fashioned today. I used to be so self-conscious that when I attended a football game, every time the players went into huddle, I thought they were talking about me. I had to sell furniture to make a living. My own. And I knew that I had once written about Jackie Mason. I think I interviewed him over the phone once. And it turned out I was in New York. It was 1989. Rudy Giuliani was running for mayor for the first time. That was the campaign he lost to David Dinkins. And Jackie Mason was like a surrogate for Rudy until he had to uh, be dropped by the campaign. Uh, after Jackie Mason told the Village Voice that Jews were voting for David Dinkins out of guilt and that Dinkins, quote, looks like a black model without a job. Yeah, that you know, that's the problem with Jackie Mason. He sometimes went too far. When he went too far in a comedic context, uh, it was funny. When he went too far in a political context, not so funny. So there was this uproar over this, as you might imagine, in New York. Uh, at the time, he was on the ABC comedy Chicken Soup. And he was denounced by the American Jewish Committee. Uh, and Rudy, you know, said this was nonsense. Uh, Jackie Mason claimed the comments had been taken out of context, and then he meant for them to be off the record, but then he held a news conference and repeated the same thing. So Jackie Mason, RIP. My father was a big comedy fan, so he had a Jackie Mason album, so I knew all the routines. Uh, I got a lot of stuff here about the Olympics, so let's just make this number one. Um, the ratings are way down, not exactly shocking, given all the problems the Tokyo Olympics have had, down 33% for the opening ceremonies on Friday, here in the U.S., that is. Um, and you know what's what's both interesting and frustrating about the Olympics is it's got all kinds of sports that you n- usually wouldn't pay any attention to. So, you know, because I just left the TV on to see what was up, found myself watching archery, which I think archery is fun to do. It's not the world's greatest spectator sport. Found myself watching water polo. Um, and it was more interesting than I expected because it's pretty high scoring and it was the women's water polo team. The U.S. clobbered Japan. I think I turned it off when it was 23 to 4. But it takes a lot of endurance and athleticism to be able to do that. And then watching some of the gymnastics, Simone Beals uh, is amazing. And some of, the, some of the people who are competing against her, the other Americans uh, trying for a spot on the women's team, are also just quite amazing the way they can twist their bodies in the air. But here's the thing. You can't just... You know, NBC uh, is broadcasting Olympics, as it always does. It pays billions of dollars for the rights. You can't just say, oh, I'd like to watch X, so let's see what time it's going to be on, especially with the 13-hour time difference. And it kind of takes some of the fun out of it because you know some of these things have already happened and you might even see a spoiler online. So I wanted to watch the women's swimming because I'm a huge fan of Katie Ledecky, who's a local, I was going to say girl, woman here, grew up here, uh, Bethesda, Maryland. It's just remarkable in the record that she has compiled, compiled, which she almost has never lost. And I read somewhere that, she, okay, uh, you know, NBC kept touting it, like, coming up, there'd be like five things, and one of them was women swimming, Katie Ledecky. It got to be like 9 o'clock. It was supposed to be on 9 o'clock. It's not on. The, the gymnastics is dragging on and on and on. And I never did get to see it. Found out this morning that Katie Ledecky had won the silver medal 
in the 400 meter freestyle against this phenom out of Australia named Ariane Titmus. And this had been touted as a big showdown because Titmus apparently is incredibly fast at this speed. I mean, there's some of the longer uh, meets. I think Ledecky's going to do really well. And so there was a lot of media attention to this. And uh, Katie Ledecky led after the first three laps and then lost in the final 25 meters. Now, here's what's fascinating about this. Katie Ledecky is now 24. First of all, it's the first Olympics swimming match that she's ever lost, which just shows you how incredibly dominant she has been during the recent Olympics. Now, did she not swim as well as she could? Uh, uh Uh-uh, that's not the case. She did her her best 400 free time. uh, It's three minutes, 57 seconds, point 36. Since she set the world record at the Olympics in Rio five years ago now. In other words, she came in just shy of the world record that she herself had set, and yet Titmus was slightly better. Uh, a tough race, Ledecky said. I think we delivered. You can't get much better than that. Tremendous race, a lot of fun. I can't be too disappointed with that. This That was my second best swim ever in the 400 meter. I felt like I fought tooth and nail, and that's all you can ask for. She was very gracious in defeat. I mean, obviously, she won a silver medal, but, you know, it's one of the things I admire about her, just the way she handles herself and the way she has handled herself since she was like this 14- or 15-year-old phenomenon. Speaking of Olympics, uh, one of the big stars, obviously, Naomi Osaka, because she's from Japan and because she's playing or will play for the first time, you know, since dropping out of the, the French Open. And guess what? She talked to reporters after declining to do that at the French Open. And, you know, you can tell that she got the normal questions. More than anything else, I'm just focused on playing tennis, said Naomi Osaka. The Olympics has been a dream of mine since I was a kid. So I feel like the break that I took was very needed. I definitely feel a little bit refreshed. I'm happy again. I feel a little bit out of my body right now. She says there's nothing wrong with my body. I just felt really nervous because she's trying to come back after a layoff, uh, I mentioned on Media Buzz, and I think I mentioned on the podcast last week that she's gotten into a bit of a Twitter spat with Megan Kelly and ended up blocking Megan. Uh, this one is just jaw-droppingly embarrassing. So a major South Korean TV broadcaster, it's called MBC, has apologized for inappropriate images for some countries during the Olympics opening ceremonies. You know, everybody makes mistakes when you're on the air for hours and hours of live coverage. This is incredible. So they decided so that people could easier, you know, when you're seeing the athletes march with their flags, identify what the countries were, they would show some images. So for South Korea, for example, there were famous building, there was uh, and statues, there was a K-pop group, a piece of salmon was shown for Norway, um... And for Canada, Canadian bacon and olives for Italy. All right, it seems pretty simplistic, but then it gets really bad. In order to represent the people of Ukraine, they showed Chernobyl, the 1986 nuclear disaster. Haiti, there were images of demonstrators in front of a burning street after the assassination of the country's president. This is supposed to be a feel-good event, the, the opening ceremonies of the Olympics. Romania was portrayed by a photo of Count Dracula. And Mongolia's delegation, there was a picture of Genghis Khan. So they had to go back many centuries. Is that the only thing the people of Mongolia are known for is the tyrannical rule of Genghis Khan? Okay, so here's this um, 
terrible apology. There was a lack of consideration for the countries involved, you think? And inspection was not thorough enough. It is an inexcusable mistake. Uh, how did this even get on the air? Like, how many people had to look at this? Site? Count Dracula? No problem. All right. Uh, I hope the Olympics gets better. Uh, I do think there's record low interest. In it. And I think a lot of that is COVID. And you can't blame all of it on the Japanese government. But, um, you know, there's some people who think that these Olympics should not even have taken place at this time. All right. Number two. Uh, I've spent a lot of time talking. I did this on Media Buzz yesterday. You can check out our segments online. Writing, I'm going to write again today about the vaccination problem in the United States because here's what's frustrating. What's frustrating is that if a greater percentage of people who are refusing to get these vaccines for various reasons, and it's a complicated situation, we would pretty much, at least in the U.S., be out of the pandemic by now. It just, I mean, even with all the variants... If we had 75% of the population inoculated, um, we would have licked this thing. And yet we don't have that. Um, And I've talked and talked and talked in an effort to understand. I've read every interview with groups of people who don't want to get this vaccine. And, you know, it's not all politics, although every single survey, every single poll shows that There are far more vaccine skepticism or vaccine hesitancy or vaccine refusal uh, among conservatives than there is among liberals. And the states with the lowest vaccination rates, Alabama is number one, uh, tend to be red states, states that were carried by Donald Trump. It doesn't mean it's Donald Trump's fault. He had a rally over the weekend. He said people should get the vaccine, but he also said it's an individual decision. Um, Republican Governor Kay Ivey of Alabama said, I've done everything I can. Uh, Here it is. Folks are supposed to have common sense. It's time to start blaming the unvaccinated folks, not the vaccinated folks. And this is what I want to talk about. I understand the frustration because the people who refuse to get these vaccinations are not only endangering themselves, but they are endangering other people by allowing the spread to continue, particularly of these hugely um, contagious Delta variants. But beating up on them is not the solution. And I'm seeing more of that now in the media coverage. Don Lemon on CNN. you got to call it what it is. Uh, If behavior is idiotic and nonsensical, I think you need to tell people their behavior is idiotic and nonsensical. Okay, how does that help the situation? I mentioned last week a piece by Washington Post columnist Max Boot. This is madness. Stop making reasonable appeals to know who will not listen to reason. And they and people like that want these mandates. You know, you want to go into the shopping mall. You want to get on a plane or a train. I wouldn't call it a passport, but, you know, private businesses and local governments do have the authority to do that. And we're seeing mask mandates coming back now in St. Louis and Los Angeles County. And those, of course, have the potential to spark a big backlash. Uh, it's a mess, in a nutshell. Um, here's David Frum writing in The Atlantic. Uh, one-time speech writer for George W. Bush. Uh, experts list many reasons for the vaccine slump. There was a bit of an uptick in the last few days, which I attribute in part to the way the media coverage has changed, to the way that um, Republican politicians like Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, uh, like Mitch McConnell, Kay Ivey, and others, are speaking out. It's not that they haven't spoken out before, it's speaking out more forcefully, or maybe their comments are just getting more attention. And there are, by the way, 
you know, the vaccination rates are lower in the black and Hispanic communities. You can certainly understand black Americans having less trust for the government given the history of experimentation on blacks, which, you know, remains in the back of many minds. Uh, some of this is educational. Some of this has to do with age. If you live in rural areas, it's harder. I've seen interviews of people saying, you know, I just, my work schedule is unpredictable. I couldn't get the time off or I don't live anywhere near where they're giving the vaccine if you're in a rural area. So it's not all politics. But as Frum points out, in early July, uh, vaccination gap was 12 percentage points, 46.7% fully vaccinated in counties won by Joe Biden, 35% in counties won by Donald Trump. And then you have these interviews with people and will you get it? Well, you're likely to get it. And a lot of people are saying, no way, they're not going to get it. So um, from says, well, state and local leaders in Biden's America have spoken clearly. He's very anti-Trump as a conservative, spoken clearly and consistently again about the urgency of vaccination. The leaders in Trump's America have talked a double game. So he mentions, yeah, Ron DeSantis has come out for vaccination, but then he's fundraising by attacking Anthony Fauci. And Fauci's status here as a lightning rod uh, continues to be rather amazing to me. Not that he's perfect, not that he can't be criticized, and not that he's never been wrong about this pandemic. So Frump kind of walks the line here. He says, compassion should always be the first reaction to vaccine hesitation. Maybe some unvaccinated people had trouble getting time off from work. Maybe they're to deal with side effects. Maybe they're disorganized. Maybe they're irrationally anxious. But there's no getting around the truth, he writes, that some considerable number of the unvaccinated are also behaving willfully and spitefully. I don't know if I agree with that. Frum says, yes, they've been deceived and manipulated by garbage TV, toxic Facebook content, craven or crazy politicians. But these are the same people who keep talking about personal responsibility. In the end, the unvaccinated person himself or herself has decided to inflict a preventable and unjustifiable harm upon family, friends, neighbors, community, country, and planet. In other words, he's saying, look, if they don't, if they want to take their own risk by not getting the shots, fine. But unfortunately, that affects a whole lot of other people. Joe Scarborough this morning on MSNBC says, just like Ronald Reagan fired the air traffic controllers, uh, Joe Biden needs to make a tough political choice. He needs to start in his own political backyard. He needs to tell the teachers union he's going to require every public health care person to get vaccinated, but also every public school teacher needs to be vaccinated. That, of course, would uh, create a huge backlash. I don't think I agree with that. You want to teach kids? You get the shot. Sarah Huckabee Sanders, uh, Mike Huckabee's daughter, former White House press secretary, running for governor of Arkansas, uh, wrote an op-ed saying, of course, people should get what she calls the Trump vaccine. And I don't care what you call it. You want to give Donald Trump credit for it, fine. He deserves credit. I said it many times. Um... And there's this other story that some people are repeating. I think some people are taking delight in this. I will never be in that situation. I think it's a tragedy if anybody gets COVID-19. I don't care what their political persuasion was. But there's a radio talk show host in the Nashville area named Phil Valentine. He's a prominent conservative host. And he publicly on his show scoffed at the need to get the vaccine. Well, he now has COVID-19. And his brother Mark says the fact of the matter is a lot of people didn't get the vaccine because he didn't. And now he's in the hospital. He's in critical condition. He put out a statement advising others to get the vaccine. He expressed his regret over the stance that he had taken. Um, And Phil Valentin had once written that he was not going to get the vaccine because his chances of dying from the virus were way less than 1%. Uh, 
Uh, now he's on a ventilator attached to an oxygen mask. So I, you know, I, I, I deliver that with no pleasure whatsoever. I, I hope he pulls through. Uh, people make wrong decisions and they pay the consequences. But in this case, he at least, I got to give him credit for recognizing that his opposition to vaccination or belittling of the threat of COVID had an effect on some of his listeners, according to his own brother, and now trying to undo some of that damage. You know, I talked on the air about how conservative hosts at Fox, namely Sean Hannity, Steve Ducey, have come out very strongly saying, get the vaccination, ignore the misinformation, it doesn't implant a microchip, doesn't cause you to be infertile, and all of that. Um, and I just said, look, there's a lot of voices at Fox News Channel. There are also anchors who've made their now their second PSA, and people like me who are speaking out. I don't agree with everything it's said on Fox, and I haven't agreed with everything at any news organization I've worked for. So I talked about that at the top of the program. I posted it online. I got all this personal vitriol and attacks. You suck, Fox sucks, and all that. You know what? Engage the argument. Don't just default to political and personal attacks. But I've kind of thrown up my hands because there's so much of that, especially on Twitter. It's made Twitter into a cesspool. I mean, people can say whatever they want, but it's not exactly adding to the dialogue. And I'm a little conflicted on the mandate business because on the one hand, I think that any business has the right to do that. Um, I think local governments have to decide. Uh, At the same time, I understand people resenting that, and I think it could it could be counterproductive. It could cause a backlash, uh, certainly against local governments. It's a state and local matter. Uh, I mean, President Biden could mandate vaccinations for everybody in the military, and he could mandate vaccinations for all federal employees, but that is the limit of his authority. Uh, but I think we are moving in that direction because people are still dying. And every day I give you the number. Remember in early June, it was 10,000 new cases a day, and then it was 20, and then it was 30. Well, now... Uh, both yesterday and on Saturday, over 50,000 new cases a day. Now, is that a fraction of the peak of the pandemic? Yes. But when you see it going in that direction, and yes, a lot of people who are getting COVID-19, who are vaccinated, the so-called breakthrough cases, are getting only mild symptoms. They don't have to go to the hospital. And that's what the vaccine is supposed to do. It doesn't necessarily mean you never, ever get it, but it means that you don't get terribly sick from it. But for the unvaccinated, some people are getting very sick, going to the hospital. It is a pandemic of the unvaccinated. Don't go anywhere. More BuzzMeter coming your way in just a moment. All right, let's go on to number three. It's related. Washington Post has a story about Republican lawmakers around the country uh, passing laws now under the banner of individual freedom to counter disease mitigation. And this might come into play in the next pandemic, if there is one, let's hope there isn't, but, you know, we're certainly in an era where there are a lot of viruses out there. Uh, so they're preventing lawmakers from um, closing businesses or reinstituting mask mandates or keeping their emergency powers. Now, I have some sympathy for that one. You know, a lot of governors got emergency powers when the pandemic broke out. Do they still need them now? Do they need them forever? Politicians don't like giving up power. That's not a news flash. Uh, So, for example, there's a North Dakota law that prohibits a mask mandate even during an outbreak of tuberculosis and a new Montana law that prohibits the use of quarantine to separate people who have probably been infected or exposed but are not yet sick. Now, what the groups who advocate this say is, well, you know, we want to make this more narrowly tailored 
to serve a public health or safety purpose. That doesn't seem crazy. Of course, the devil is in the details. And one more point on this, which is, in reading interviews with people who don't want to get these shots, a, a number of them bring up the fact that it's only gotten emergency approval from the FDA, and therefore they feel it's experimental and therefore risky. And that if the FDA gave final approval, then maybe they would change their minds. What the hell is the Food and Drug Administration waiting for? I mean, yes, technically it's emergency approval, but what, 160 million Americans have gotten these shots? Pfizer, Johnson & Johnson, Moderna? If the FDA is willing to allow that, why in the hell can it not say, okay, we've looked at this, we've studied it, we're giving our final approval? It's, a, it's almost a technicality at this point because the FDA is allowing more than, a, well over 100 million Americans to get these shots. And, oh, but it's experimental. So now I read, well, they'll probably approve it on a permanent basis by the fall. What are they waiting for? What is the argument? I don't get it. This is one case you know, sometimes it was a good thing, sometimes it was not good, such a good thing when Donald Trump would pressure an agency like the FDA and people called him anti-science. President Biden should call in his FDA hands and said, you need to move more quickly because if you were to give final approval to this thing that you already have sort of given the green light to uh, and, you know, roughly half the country has gotten, more unvaccinated people would get the shots. It should not be taking this long. All right, story number four. Herschel Walker, you obviously know his name, is a big college football star. Uh, he is gearing up, or at least is being touted, uh, to run for Senate in the state of Georgia. Football hero from the University of Georgia, and then, of course, a big NFL star. He's also a business owner. Uh, his chicken products are distributed around uh, the U.S. He is a friend of Donald Trump and a black conservative. And so if he runs, the, the thinking is, well, he'll probably get the Republican nomination with Trump's backing. But the AP has a pretty troubling story pulling together a lot of information about Herschel Walker that has actually been out there. An Associated Press review of hundreds of pages of public records uh, finds that he has had a turbulent personal history that could dog his Senate bid. I mean, when I read you these details, you'll say, how can he even run? And this is not, I don't think this is intended to be a hit job on Herschel Walker, because as you'll see, he's acknowledged a lot of this stuff. The documents detail, some of this comes from his divorce, that he repeatedly threatened his ex-wife's life, exaggerated claims of financial success, and alarmed business associates with unpredictable behavior. So he's been open about his struggle with mental illness. He wrote about this in a 2008 book about being diagnosed with what used to be called multiple personality disorder, which is now called disassociative identity disorder. He acknowledges violent urges. He says he played Russian roulette uh, at a kitchen table. This is back in 1991 with a loaded gun with a single bullet pointed at his head. He says it's kind of a redemption story because he talks about his Christian faith, talks about being so angry at a guy who was days late in delivering a car he had bought that he was thinking of murdering this guy. All he could think about was how satisfying it would be to step out of the car, pull out the gun, and squeeze the trigger. He didn't do it, obviously. And back in 2005, his ex-wife, Kathy, got a protective order against him. Um, says he once pointed a gun at her head and said, I'm going to blow your effing brains out. Look, if Herschel Walker has rebuilt his life, has moved away from that behavior to the point that he's a successful businessman, uh, that is great. More power to him. But in political terms, 
for all this to come up, and you can just imagine the 30-second ads, um, I think, you know, it's all obviously fair game. And if he decides to run in Georgia, he will have to deal with that baggage, or it might turn out that he will reconsider and not run. I don't know. Number five. Um, This is a, a fascinating story about Catholic journalism. And it's recounted quite nicely by the Washington Post. So there are two guys named Ed Condon and J.D. Flynn. They used to work for the Catholic News Agency. Uh, they resigned from that those jobs, and they formed a news outlet called The Pillar, which is on Substack. It's extremely popular. It's got thousands of subscribers, and you can make a lot of money on Substack if you have a big following. And they declared that they wanted to do serious, responsible, sober journalism about the church, uh, and a different kind of journalism. Well, they're in the middle of a huge firestorm now because they reported uh, on a guy named Monsignor Jeffrey Burrell, who was a high-ranking member of the church, as well as you know a local Monsignor, who's had to resign from his high-ranking position in the Catholic Church after these two guys used what they say was commercially available data that included location history from the the gay hookup app Grindr. And they used it to track the movements of this high-ranking priest uh, from his offices to gay nightclubs. And as a result, the guy had to step down, not as a priest, at least right now, but from his high-ranking position, you know, approved by the Vatican. Now, they wouldn't talk to the Washington Post, so apparently they're not that proud of what they did, except in podcasts, here's how they explained it. Um, Condon said, there's nothing to recommend the indiscriminate naming and shaming of people for moral failures just because you can. That is unethical. And that is not something I believe we've done. Uh, Flynn said, people are entitled to moral failures and repentance and reconciliation and to a legitimate good reputation. There's a difference between that and serial and consistent immoral behavior on the part of a public figure charged with addressing public morality isn't there. So the thing is, if you are a Catholic priest, you are supposed to be celibate. You can be gay, but you can't act on it. You're supposed to be celibate. So if if a priest is found to be gay, that would be considered, according to the teachings and according to the Vatican, a legitimate reason for the priest to have to step down. But at the same time, this has nothing to do with minors. It has nothing to do with his parishioners. This this is a guy who just went to these gay hookup places. But of course, the thing that makes it a much larger story than just the church or religion is, couldn't this be done to anybody uh, using this? They paint this from a kind of a questionable character, at least in my view, uh, it was kind of a questionable transaction, this publicly available hookup data. Well, if that kind of data can be obtained from your phone, it didn't include his name or even his phone number, but there, I guess, were ways to figure out that it was him. Uh, Then you got to think it can be done to anybody. And clearly, as conservative Catholics, uh, these two guys thought this was a newsworthy story. So as the Post puts it, uh, while the competition among secular media for eyeballs and clicks is about financial survival for Catholic media, There's another underlying struggle for the right to say who is on the side of God and the true church. So you have left-leaning 
Catholic news organizations that tend to be supportive of Pope Francis and some of the liberalization steps he's taken, or at least some of the uh, symbolic gestures he's made, for example, on gay people who am I to judge and saying they shouldn't be excluded from the church. And then you have more right-leaning Catholics who are often critical of Pope Francis uh, and who tend to focus very much on things like abortion and his whole debate about should Democratic pro-choice politicians even get communion, which I've talked about a little bit, um, and this question of how you conduct yourself sexually. So there's no easy answer here, but I think the reason that these two journalists uh, sound like they're on the defensive, well, we certainly don't oppose, we certainly oppose indiscriminately going after people, but that's not what we did here, except a lot of people think it is what they did here. Uh, that's why I think it has resonance well beyond a debate about religion and priests and the rules of the Catholic Church. So it's worth a read uh, because there's so many layers to this story. And I don't think it's the last story we're going to see where data taken from smartphones is going to be proved to be somebody's undoing. And of course, it can be employed like a weapon against people with whom you ideologically disagree. But what happens when it's turned on people who you think are great ideologically? And would you have a different view of that when they are the target of this sort of, I guess I would almost call it electronic surveillance? Well, once again, I hope you had a good weekend. Um, There's a lot to check out from Media Buzz if you have a chance. We had a fascinating conversation with Glenn Greenwald about... um, not just the NPR piece about Ben Shapiro I talked about in the podcast last week, but also about vaccination and big tech and and and, and the role. Um, what what Greenwald thinks is a conspiracy theory blaming Republicans and conservatives and media. He sees a general unanimity, and actually it was Ben Dominic who said on my show that most of the media, including conservative media, are united on the need to get vaccinated. Not everybody agrees with that. Uh, anyway, I thought it was a good, high-level, smart discussion. You may have your own views on it. With that, I'll just remind you that Apple iTunes is one of many places that you can get become a subscriber to Media Buzzmeter, and we'll see you tomorrow with even more Buzzmeter. This is Jimmy Fallon, inviting you to join me for Fox Across America, where we'll discuss every single one of the Democrats' dumb ideas. Just kidding. It's only a three-hour show. Listen live at noon Eastern or get the podcast at foxacrossamerica.com.